You'll find it printed in your bulletin. Um, and it's also in your pew Bibles on page 202. So we're in Judges chapter 3, beginning with verse 12, and we'll be reading through verse 30. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites, and they went and defeated Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. And on the people of Israel, and the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, eighteen years. And then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud was finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence. Nahud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Nahud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Nahud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and he thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. And then Ehud went out into the porch, closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him, and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came. When they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were, till they were embarrassed. But when he, when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sariah. And when he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. And then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites, and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men, not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. Let's pray together. Father, this is your word to us, and we pray that by your spirit you would open it to us even right now and open our hearts to your word that we might be receptive. We are in need of you, and we pray that you would meet us now. And it's in the name of Jesus that we do pray. Amen. Well, if you're visiting, you're thinking, what in the world have I gotten myself into? And if you've been coming for a long time, you're thinking, what in the world have I gotten myself into today? Uh, we've been talking this summer about the book of Judges. And we're um, discussing what God gives us here in the book of Judges. And we're hearing the stories of God's great deliverances of his people. And one of the things that we've said every week is the overall theme that we're seeing of what God does week in, week out in the lives of these people. We see again and again that the greatness of God's grace is seen most clearly, most brilliantly in the depths to which it reaches. And we're starting to see that some of those depths can be very deep indeed. Um, the last few weeks we've talked about God loving the unlovely. We've talked about turning from idols. 
Last week we talked about what does it mean to have a personal relationship with God. Uh, And today, this morning, we're going to look at one of the most colorful stories in all of Scripture. Um, And it's it's one that reminds us that um, the Bible, the Old Testament, as strange and foreign as it might feel at times, um, is captivating too, isn't it? I mean, I heard a few chuckles out there. There aren't, there aren't that many readings that we have on Sunday mornings where you, you hear about Eglon, a very fat man, and you hear uh, some of the things that happen in this story. So today we're going to talk about um, salvation comedy. Now, comedy used in a couple senses. One, Comedy obviously needs to be funny, and for the, for the original hearers and readers of this book, this would have been very funny for them indeed, and so we'll discuss why. But more than that, um, for those of you maybe like me who were English majors, you might remember the name Northup Fry. He was a, um, a literary critic, and his definition of comedy is something, a story, a play, uh, that, d- that tells us about the reintegration of society. Things go wrong, and they're brought back together in the end. That's what happens in a comedy. And a tragedy tells us about the disintegration of society, right? Things start off well, and they go badly. In a comedy, things often go badly, but they end up being tied back together in the end. And that's what happens in this story. It's a story of salvation comedy. It's a story of God's bringing rescue and salvation to his people. So we're going to talk about... Uh, here's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about, talk about the conflict. We're going to talk about the coup d'etat. And then we're going to talk about a couple points of application. Uh, so first, we're going to talk about the conflict. And we see this first in verses 12 through 14. As we go through this summer, you're going to see this is a repeated refrain, that the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And God raises up for them a deliverer. And first, he raises up for them oppression. And in this particular story, it comes in the form of the Ammonites, the Amalekites, and the Moabites. Now, these were peoples who dwelled around Israel and were longtime enemies of Israel. The Moabites and the Ammonites are actually distant relatives of Israel. They are um, the descendants of Lot, for those of you that know your Genesis history. Uh, Lot was Abraham's nephew. Abraham and Lot go their separate ways. And Abraham and his children begin to and continue to worship the true God. And Lot and his descendants go in other directions and worship foreign gods. So these are foreign enemies that God brings into their lives um, to, to bring discipline and to bring them back on track. In fact, in this story we see that they actually bring 18 years of oppression for the people of Israel. Now the people cry out as they do again and again in these stories in the book of Judges, and what does God do? He raises up a deliverer. And just one thing that I think stands out in the very fact of the conflict that happens here is that the conflict in this story, and every conflict in the book of Judges, and every conflict in your own life is actually fundamentally a theological issue. Okay, the greatest problem for the people of Israel was not Moab, it was not the Amalekites, it was not the Ammonites. It was the fact that time and again they keep walking away from God. They keep straying from Him. And the author of Judges is very clear on the fact that it is God that they're offending and it's God who steps into their lives to bring them back on track. And it's true with everything that happens in our life. Whatever is going on, we actually serve a God who is very involved in our lives, who is tied up in the details of our lives. These are not random things that come into our life, but behind them we actually have the hand of a God who is at work in our life. Now, uh, 
So the, the conflict is here. It's between the people of Israel and the enemies that God brings into their life. Let's talk about the coup d'etat, the overthrow of the government. This happens in verse 15 and following. We have, again, some of the most colorful characters in the Bible. We have Ehud, uh, a left-handed Benjaminite. Now, for most of us, that doesn't, that doesn't really mean much. A few of you are left-handed, and you're thinking, finally we get our due, our recognition from society. Well, Ehud, uh, being a Benjaminite, ben- Benjamin was one of the tribes of Israel, and it literally means son of my right hand. And Here we have a son of my right hand who is a left-hander, it tells us, at least in our translation. He wasn't like everybody else in his tribe. Uh, But even more than that, translators have sort of struggled to figure out what to do with this phrase. And here in the ESV, we have left-handed. Because this term only appears in one other place in the Bible, and it's later in the book of Judges. And they've chosen to translate it um, left-handed. But more likely, uh, Ehud was ambidextrous. Okay? If you look in chapter 20 of Judges, you'll see that there's a whole, a whole group, a whole military contingent from Benjamin, from the tribe of Benjamin that is left-handed like this, that's ambidextrous. And it says that they were trained by actually most likely having their, left, their right hands tied behind their back. And so that they were able to actually use, as it says later on, that they could shoot a bow, they could sling a stone with either their right hand or their left hand. Okay, so it's not just these left-handed, but he's ambidextrous. In other words, then in the middle of the armies of Israel, um, Ehud is one of the special forces. He's one of their crack troops. And he's the one that the people of Israel choose to take their tribute to Moab. For 18 years, he's been oppressing them, the king of Moab, Eglon. And for 18 years, they've been having to pay him off to bring tribute so that he will not destroy them. And this year, it's Ehud that brings uh, the tribute to him. Now, the other significance of the fact that he's ambidextrous, uh, as well as it's just that he's cool, that he's in special forces, also, uh, it goes out of his way to, to tell us that he uh, fashions for himself a special sword, a cubit long, it's a foot and a half long, and he makes this sword, and he straps it on his right thigh. Okay, now the significance for that is if you are an Israelite, and you're coming to bring tribute, and you're coming into the hands of your hated enemy, what are they going to do? Well, they're going to they're frisk you. They're, they're going to run the wand over you, make you walk through the metal detector. And for any right-handed soldier, you wear your sword on your left side. So that's where they're going to check for a weapon. But Ehud is left-handed. He's ambidextrous. And uh, his sword goes past the notice of the guards, much to his harm later on. Uh, we find out that Ehud is, in fact, um, shrewd. Tricky. If you were an Israelite, you'd be reading this thinking, that's our guy. Our guy is Ehud. Our guy is not like Eglon, who's the other character in the story. Um, his name, it's a, it's a diminutive form. It's like a little nickname. And it means something like little bull or little calf. Um, it's a pun on, an, on a Hebrew word for round or rotund. Eglon is being mocked even in his name. Story goes out of its way to tell us that he was very fat. As best I can tell, this is the only time in the Bible that we hear somebody was very fat. Well, he was. And the story goes out of the way to show us that not only is he fat, but he's slow. He's mentally slow. His servants are slow. They're dull-witted. They're not at all like our hero Ehud. Well, we see their confrontation. Ehud comes to him in verse 19. They deliver the tribute. Ehud starts back, he sends everyone else home, and then he turns back and comes to the king. And he comes to him and he says, "Uh, King, I have a secret message for you. 
And again, there's another pun going on in the Hebrew because the word for message is the same word for word or thing or matter. Okay, it's a very it's a it's a um, it's a flexible word. So maybe what the king is saying, I have is hearing is I have a secret message for you. And Ehud and the readers are thinking, I have a secret thing for you, and it's strapped onto my right thigh. And verse twenty, uh, he heightens the excitement for the king when he hears that he, there's this secret message for him. The slow king, the dull-witted king, what does he do? He sends all his servants out of the way so he can hear it in private with his mortal enemy. And Ehud approaches, and the king is sitting most likely up in the top of his throne room. And Ehud begins to come up the steps, and he says, King, he changes what he says. He says, King, not only not do I have a secret message for you, I have a message for you, a thing for you, a matter for you from God. And Eglon rises from his seat to receive the message that Ehud is bringing him from God. And what does Ahud do? He takes his sword uh, out from where it's hidden underneath his clothes, and he plunges it into the king, and he falls down dead. And we get the very graphic detail that the dung came out. Well, what happens next? Um, It gets worse. Uh, Ahud uh, locks the door, and he sneaks out, most likely out a back window, and the servants finally come, and it's been quiet in there. It's been a long time. They're sort of shuffling around outside the door, not quite sure what to do. One of them says, well, perhaps he's relieving himself in the little closet in the corner. And you can imagine their embarrassment building as they're trying to figure out what they should do and beginning more and more nervous. And they're thinking, you, you go knock on the door. No, 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 you go knock on the door. So finally, it's more than they can take. And they go find a key and they open the door. And there is King Eglon dead on the floor. Um, what happens next? Well, Ahud escapes. And what does he do? He rallies the troops of Israel. And he takes them out, leads them um, to the fords of the river. And they capture the fords. And it says uh, towards the end of our story that they killed 10,000 strong, able-bodied men. Not men who are fat and ineffectual like Eglon, but some of Moab's best troops. They, uh, they rescue their people from their military oppression. It says that not a man escaped. Uh, 10,000, the numbers in, in the Old Testament are, are often used symbolically. And here, at the very least, it means something like total victory, that they completely defeated the enemy. And the result for them is that they have rest for 80 years. For two generations, they have rest. Salvation comedy. Things were going very badly, and things are made right. Now, the question, of course, is what in the world does this have to do with us? Um, some of you are probably a little embarrassed that this is in your Bible. Does it really say that? This must be why I've never heard this before, because nobody wants to read this story. Well, there are just three things I want to point out this morning that I think um, that are pertinent for us, because this is salvation comedy for us as well. Because our salvation also comes in all its forms in ways that bring reintegration, that bring healing, that bring deliverance, that bring rescue. So just three things I want to point out. One is that God hears the cries of his people. I mean, that's exactly what happens in the beginning of the story. And we're going to see in every story. It says that the people cry out to the Lord when this oppression comes into their life. And God hears them and he raises up a deliverer. Now, what's interesting about this word that you see cries, that they cry out to the Lord, it doesn't mean that they repent. It means that they're miserable, that they're oppressed, and they cry out to him. It's interesting that God doesn't wait for their repentance, that he hears their misery and he responds. 
But what's interesting about that is, what is it that moves God to action? It's not their worthiness. It's not that they deserve rescue. It's not that they somehow have pleased God and so he's going to step into their lives for their good. He looks and sees their misery and their need and he responds to them. And the same is true for us. God responds to us and comes to us and meets us in the middle of our weakness and need, not in the middle of our merit and deserving his good pleasure. Now that's true whether we're talking about salvation in the big picture of God reaching out and mercifully granting us forgiveness and healing and restoration through the person of His Son, Jesus. It is certainly that. God does that. He meets us in our weakness and our need, in our inability to save ourselves. But it's also true in the smaller salvations of our life. It's also true in the other ways that God shows up and meets us in the middle of our need. Some of us who maybe have been Christians for a long time understand that, sure, God doesn't... um, He doesn't forgive us of our sins because of our merit. But then what do we find ourselves doing in the details of our lives? When when you get sick, when serious family struggle comes, when people pass away in your family, when there's financial struggle, when you look at your kids and you're scared because you feel like they're going in a direction uh, that's going to lead to their harm, all those kinds of situations in our life, when we are in need, when we need deliverance, when we need God to show up, What do we think then? Maybe if I pray enough, then maybe God will be merciful and he'll come and he'll take care of my children. In the middle of financial struggle, well, maybe if I'm just more faithful uh, to give to the church, to tithe from my money, then maybe God's going to actually turn around and bless me financially. You know, maybe if... um, If I pray enough, if I do enough good things, then God's going to meet me in the middle of all my health struggles right now and actually bring healing to my body. We know that God forgives us of our sins out of his mercy, out of his grace, that we can't merit it. But how often do we turn around in the smaller situations of our life and we're suddenly bargaining with God? We're suddenly trying to convince him that we deserve something. We're suddenly treating God as if we can just twist his arm, that he's not well disposed to us, that we have to somehow make life work for us and please him and pay him off so that he might actually show up and work in our life. We see again in the book of Judges and in this story that God hears the cries of his people and he meets him in the middle of their unworthiness. Now the other thing I think we see is that God's salvation also reaches us in the middle of our real world, in the middle of the real mire and muck and mess um, of our real lives. He meets us in the middle of hard marriages, heartbreaking family situations. He meets us in the middle of the messes you tend to make of your life with your friends and your family and your work. He meets us in the, in the depths of our own actual sin, actual rebellion, rebellion, actual turning away from God. This story, I think, graphically shows us that God is not put off by the mess of our lives. Um, He's not sanitized. He's not remote. He's not distant. Somebody told me the story uh, recently about a a dentist that they know. And nobody likes going to the dentist. Have you ever noticed that when you go, you're immediately apprehensive? Nobody likes to get their teeth scraped and cleaned. And and Have you ever found yourself in the situation where the dentist is cleaning your teeth and you feel like you have to sort of make an apology for how dirty your teeth are? Like, I know it's been a a long time since I've flossed. You know, we're immediately uncomfortable in the presence of our dentist. And somebody was telling me the story about a dentist that when he first came out to meet him, 
He was dressed head to toe in scrubs. He had a plexiglass shield over his face, and he had latex gloves on. Okay, how much more scared of your dentist are you going to be when he comes out wearing that? But what is the message that you receive when you come in the presence of your dentist? I'm not going to let you contaminate me. I'm not going to let you get too close. You have something dirty that I'm afraid to be in the presence of, and so I'm putting up every barrier I possibly can. Now, some of us think about God that way, that he stands far off, that he's sanitized, that he's removed, that he can't possibly be in the middle of the mess of my actual life. Well, we see here that God really does step into the middle of our lives. We see it in the person of Ahud, the deliverer that God sends, who's very much in the mess of the life of the people of Israel. He doesn't stand far off. He comes down and becomes very intimately involved. And we see it, of course, most clearly in the person of Jesus, that God does not stand far off, that he comes down into the middle of things with us. Jesus, uh, not the good dentist, but the good physician, what does he do? In the Gospels, we read story story after story of him stepping into the lives of hurt, broken people, sick people, and bringing them deliverance, salvation, healing. Uh, We see him in John chapter 9, coming in contact with a man who is blind. And what does he do? Jesus, he kneels down, and he spits into the ground. And he makes a little mud with his fingers, and he wipes it on to this man's eyes. He tells him to go and wash, and that's how he heals him. And there are stories... um, Like Mark 1, a leper comes to Jesus. Now, in that society, lepers were some of the most despised people because people were so scared of them. They had such a horrendous disease. They were not allowed to touch anyone. In fact, a leper had to walk through town shouting out, unclean, unclean, so that everyone would give him a wide berth, that no one would touch him. Imagine somebody in a situation like this with this frightening disease, perhaps never being touched by another human being for years and years on end. Nobody wants to be contaminated until Jesus. What does Jesus do in this story? He reaches out and he touches this man. And he shows him that his uncleanness is not more powerful than Jesus' ability to save. That Jesus' goodness and cleanliness and healing is in fact more powerful than any contamination that he comes against. Jesus gets criticized time and again for eating dinner with tax collectors and and, uh, prostitutes, some of the people who were most despised in their society. Tax collectors, these traitors to their own people, and these prostitutes living on the very margin of society. What does Jesus do? He eats with them. He calls them his friends. He brings healing and grace into their lives as well. One of these prostitutes shows up at a dinner party in Luke chapter 7, broken over her sin. And what does she do? She cries, she weeps, and wets Jesus' feet with uh, her tears, and she bends down and dries them with her hair. Jesus doesn't turn around and rebuke her. What does Jesus do? He embraces her with the forgiveness that he brings. God doesn't stand remote and distant from our sin and from our struggle and from our lives. He steps down into the middle of it. So I guess my suggestion is, Quit running and quit trying to hide. Some of you are scared of yourselves and you're scared of the situation you've gotten yourself into and you're scared of the things that have their grip on your life. And scripture tells us that God is not scared. 
He's not scared of you. Now the last thing, God hears his cries. He reaches into the midst of our real world. The last thing is simply this, that God's salvation is good news. Now we read this story and we think, how crude, how offensive, and a political assassination. Um, Eglon is murdered on his throne, and the dung came out, and we're scandalized. How could this possibly be in the Bible? Well, we are remote from this story, but the people who would have first heard this and first experienced it certainly were not. Think about the story from the point of view of the Israelites. Or think about a story like this from the point of, point of view of anyone who has been oppressed, who has been under the heel of a tyrant, whether that's a political tyrant or something that's got its grip on you in your life, someone who, is, uh, who knows that their life is being destroyed. They've been under the grip of the king of Moab for 18 years. If you were one of the original hearers of this, if you know what it's like to feel under the boot of something, in the grip of something that's got your life in its hands, that's oppressing you, then you don't think, how crude, how offensive. You think, the good guys win and the bad guys lose. You think God's people are set free. You think that God actually hears the cries of his people and he cares enough to show up and do something about it. Uh, you'd, be, you'd be dancing in the streets. Now, Elizabeth and I spent um, several years in Chapel Hill um, at the University of North Carolina, and I inherited from her family a love for the basketball team at UNC. And last year, in 2005, they won the NCAA Basketball Championship. And I've been at UNC when the team wins, and Franklin Street, which runs right up next to campus, everybody on campus just swarms onto this road and throws the biggest of parties. They rejoice their team has won. Everything has gone right. Everything in the world is as it should be, right? And this is a basketball game. Do we rejoice over the salvation that God brings into our life? Do we rejoice over the fact that God really meets us in the middle of our mess? Do we rejoice over the fact not only that He forgives our sins, that He brings healing, spiritual reconciliation? Do we rejoice over the many, many ways God continues to shower his blessings on us all the time. So just a couple thoughts. If you've experienced rescue, salvation, if you've experienced the work of Jesus coming into your life, um, has that done two things for you? Is it making you thankful? Is it making you a person of gratitude? It's the thing about being in a situation where you owe something to someone where you owe them gratitude, you owe them uh, restoration. In this case, you owe them salvation. What does it do? It takes our eyes off ourselves and puts them onto something else, to someone else. Is your experience of God's salvation making you grateful? Is it taking your eyes off of yourself and teaching you to say thank you, and teaching you to rejoice? The other thing is, is it making you hopeful? Even in the midst of whatever situation you find yourself now, when you know the work of God at work, bringing healing and restoration in your life, is it making you hopeful that he's going to continue to show up? That he's going to show up again just like he did before? That you have not now wandered too far from him? But are you finding yourself more and more in a place where in faith you can wait and rest and trust that you have a God that is well disposed to you in Jesus? And then the last thing, is it making you different? Are these moments of rescue, 
the showering of God's grace in your life, is it really bringing change in your life? Now, one of the things we're going to see again and again every week in the book of, in the book of Judges is the people of Israel again and again abandon their God. They fall away. They turn their back and walk in the other direction. Is God's salvation bringing real and deep change into your life? Is it causing you to begin to turn away from all the things that are leading you astray? We talked about this a few weeks ago in terms of idols. Is it causing you to turn away from your idols and back to the real and true and living God? The Israelites, they longed for rescue. They cried out in the middle of their misery. They wanted God to bring relief for them. And then when the relief came, they quickly ran away again. They were much more interested in um, the release of oppression than they were in their offense against their God. Is it bringing real change in your life? Um, Just an example. Let's say you've gotten yourself in financial trouble or danger. You've run up the balance on your credit card. You've taken out a second mortgage on your house. Um, for our students at William & Mary, you know, your, your credit card is out of control maybe. And someone comes along, your parents, a foundation, the lottery, and you win. And all your debts are paid off. It's good news. It's salvation. It's rescue. But the problem is, that you still spend like you used to spend, right? You've been taken out of debt, but you've got the same habits. I found out when I graduated from college, began to have to seriously actually balance my own checkbook again. I hit this time when I, I was an English major, I can't add, so I missubtracted. And I wrote a bad check. Now, if you've ever written a bad check, you know that you don't have to be hundreds of dollars off, you can be $2 off, and uh, that check's going to bounce. And you also know that if you bounce a check before, that you may bounce three others before you even know about the first one. So suddenly, uh, there I have the statement in hand, and I've got about four checks that I've written that all bounce because I misadded. And I go in uh, to speak to the bank representative and to plead my case, try to look as pitiful as I actually could. And the woman says, okay, well, we understand, and so what we'll do is, you know, we've gotten your account straightened out, you've gotten the money back into it now, and so we will just clear away these fees. You won't have to pay them. And I thought, hallelujah. Uh, I experienced deliverance. And over the course of the next couple of years, I needed that same kind of deliverance about three more times. <laughs> because, because the problem was, she took away, she took away um, the bank fees, but I still didn't know how to add. I was still the same person. Then my condition had changed, but something deeper had not yet changed. And the question comes up for us. Is God's work at li- grace at work in your life in such a way, not only that it's bringing relief and rescue in the immediate moment, but it is actually changing us, turning us into new people. The Bible's image for this is that over the course of our lives as Christians, you are being turned more and more into the image of Christ, that we might reflect Him. The people of Israel, again and again, we're going to see that their situation changed, but their hearts didn't. And God's grace comes into our lives, not only to relieve our situation, but that he might actually make us into new people. This salvation comedy at work in the life of Ehud and the Israelites, where he brings reintegration, where he brings deliverance, where he brings healing and wholeness. It's the same salvation comedy at work in our lives as well. It's what Jesus offers us. Not only relief from our situation, but a whole change of life, a whole change of the people that we are. 
that we might be people that are more and more being made in the image of Jesus himself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you hear the cries of your people and that you reach out to us in our need, not because of our worthiness, but in spite of our unworthiness. Lord, we pray that you would make us grateful. We pray that you would continue your good work of changing us. We pray that we would run from the things that enslave us and find our freedom only in you. Pray that you would meet us even today, even this morning, even right now, as we come before you, not only in your word, but at your table. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.